This is No Love Live with Pastor Tim Warholic. Tim is the senior pastor of Paradise Calvary Chapel in Las Vegas, Nevada. How are you today? Good? Liars. I'm just kidding. I always wanted to do that, though. Because we do just say good, right? And it just sort of rolls off your tongue. Or it's good morning or whatever. We're in a mess. This is a mess. And that's how I want to start this morning. We are in a mess. As we look around the world today... And we see people grappling with what we're going to talk about this morning, grappling with the truth. What is truth? That's a famous question that was asked by a pretty famous Gentile guy in the Bible. There are so many apparent truths available. And I want to talk about where the source of truth is specifically this morning. So if you need a Bible... Um, you can raise your hand because that's actually the truth. You need a copy of the truth this morning in your hand because that's what I'm going to talk about. Just wave and they'll get one to you. We're going to be in John chapter 18, so you can turn there. And uh, we're going to look at an interaction this morning between Jesus and Pontius Pilate where he asks this very famous question, what is truth? And it's asked from a, a position of a culture that no doubt was suffering from the same type of relativism and uh, just going with the flow that we're struggling with today. And looking at that question will help us to be able to filter some of the things going on around us this morning. So, Let's jump in at John chapter 18, verse 28. John 18, 28. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning, but they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. So the mock trial is what I'm going to call it that the Jews have just performed with Jesus. It's a meaningless trial. It's illegal by all of their standards. They now have decided they're going to crucify him, and they move him now to the, the local authority. They're the authority religiously, but because the Gentiles are running the show in Jerusalem, i.e. the Romans, they can't put anybody to death. So they have to get the Gentiles involved here to accomplish what they're trying to do. But they're not going to go in to where the governor is. They, well, they're not going to go in because, you know, that would defile them. They're getting ready to kill the king of kings. But, hey, we don't want to get defiled by going in where the Gentiles are. So uh, we're here to see you and you need to come out to us. This tension that you'll see in this back and forth between Pilate and the Jews is reflective of the larger tension going on in the community. The Jews hated the Gentiles, and likewise, the Gentiles weren't too real, you know, up on the Jews. They, uh, they 
I even hate to use the term they coexisted because the Gentiles were ruling over them, right? So this was a real sticking point for the Jews. Uh, Pilate was sick of their nonsense, and they were pretty good apparently at the nonsense. And so that sets the stage here for this discussion. Verse 29, Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, if he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. See that sort of smart alecky response? Like, well, what accusation do you bring? Well, look, he must have done something wrong or we wouldn't have bothered to come down here. So this is tension. Then Pilate said to them, you take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore, the Jews said to him, it is not lawful to put anyone to death. What? You want to put somebody to death? See, he had just sent him away. Look, I'm not going to listen to any more of your nonsense about laws. Go take care of that stuff yourself. And their response is, well, we want to kill this guy. And so suddenly the stakes are a little higher. And of course, this saying was said, we're explained in verse 32, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke signifying by what death he would die. So they're, they're kind of upset that, that Pilate is questioning, questioning them. And, and we don't see here what the charges were. But Luke tells us in Luke 23, 2, he says, And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So there was this claim that Jesus was a king, and that will have caught Pilate's attention, a rival, if you will, to the, to the government at that point. So it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, and this made the saying that Jesus had said fulfilled, how he would die. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you king of the Jews? Here's the personal part of the interview now. It's interesting to me that Jesus went into the praetorium. The Jews wouldn't go. Jesus was called in, didn't uh, make a big deal about it. He went in, and then they have this personal conversation. He said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, are you speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you this concerning me? Hey, is this your concern? Have you heard of me as one who's trying to take over? Or are you just going on what you've heard, the hearsay that's going on around us at the moment? Pilate, maybe a little frustrated by that answer, says, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? I said, this is not, I'm not really involved here. And yet they're bringing you here and they want to kill you. What exactly have you done to raise their ire like this? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. And if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews but now my kingdom is not from here. He's explaining to him, hey, look, I'm a king, and, and that's right, 
but my kingdom's not of this world. Otherwise, there would be a battle ready to ensue because my servants would be here to take their king home. Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? He's, I think, somewhat confused by this turn of events. Are you really a king? And Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So he lays out for him what this kingdom looks like. It's a kingdom concerned with truth, not power. And he says, I'm here to proclaim that truth, the truth about God, the truth about me, about the truth about your condition and about your need. It's not a kingdom that's right, you know, in front of you, worried about the things of the world. In fact, he says it's not of this world. And then this question for the ages that we're going to focus on this morning. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And it's, to me, that's, there's a deep exasperation in that saying, as if this whole thing of talk of truth and the Jews and wanting to put someone to death and everything else, it just sort of comes to a head and out of Pilate's mouth comes this amazing question, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said, and said to them, I find no fault in him. In other words, he's just, look, I'm done with this. There's no fault in this guy. Yeah, he might be a little crazy, but he's probably not a criminal talking about truth. What is it? Why would Pilate respond that way? I think for him in those days, as in our own days, there is a real disconnect be between what really is truth and what people think is truth. And so we, we, we come to this question this morning, at least I do, after thinking about this for a long time, to establish a basis for truth in a culture that is uh, not even slowly but surely anymore, but losing its moorings to the truth. In other words, we have multiple truths now that can even be held. You can have this dichotomy in your mind of having little truths in little boxes that all disagree with one another, but somehow we let them live in our minds. And so I want to I want to bring us back to the this morning to what is truth and where is it located and how can we move forward as a church embracing it? What does that even look like? And so we'll answer this question this morning. If you would put up that next slide about truth. We need a definition of truth here. And this word truth in the Greek is very revealing, and it's given its definition through these three other words. So what is truth? Let me give you the grammatically correct answer here so that we can start from ground zero. Now, this sounds more like a college lecture than it does a message at this moment, but I have to establish what truth is today because I think a lot of people are like, well, truth is kind of what you believe, right? No. Truth is actually something objective. It is a thing. It's a fact. A thing that is indisputably the case. It's indisputable. Look, 
Gravity is indisputable in its cause and effect. It's indisputable, right? If I just lean forward a little too far, what will happen? Faceplant, right? Why will that happen? Gravity. It's indisputable. It's a fact. You can't, no matter what you want to believe, gravity is a fact. Next, reality. This is another way of, of saying what truth is or defining truth. The world or state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to an idealistic or notional idea of them. So this is things as they really are, not as you hope they'll be, right? We can have idealistic idea, uh, things or notions that we have about how things are, but ultimately we come down to how they really are and we call that reality. So the truth is always not, is never going to be idealistic or notional. It's going to be the state of things as they really are. Like we'd like Afghanistan to be a peaceful nation. And we could even believe that they could be a peaceful nation. But what is the reality? It's not idealistic, right? It is not a peaceful nation at the moment. And we wish it was. All right, the last thing, certainty. We're thinking about truth. We think of something that is certain. The quality of being reliably true, a firm conviction, con conviction that something is the case. It actually exists in time and space as a reality, a certainty. So I like what it says here, opposed to an idealistic notion uh, or a notional idea. This, this sense of you know, what you hope would be the truth as opposed to what actually is the truth. We can say it this way. It's not what you think or what you feel. It's what's true. It's real. It's tangible. All right, I've labored that for a reason. Because so much of what we hear today is stuff that is notional or is what we want to be true or what we hope might be true. And we have to, we can't let, uh, certainly from a biblical point of view, let that happen to us. We have to establish, and we've established a definition now. What is truth? Let's take it a step further. I'm going to give you three things this morning that help us as Christians establish truth. Number one, number one Jesus is truth. Look at John 1.14 here as he puts it up. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and Truth. So Jesus, in his uh, coming to us, and John reports it there that he, we beheld his glory. The glory is the one of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He is the expression of God in time and space, and he is truth. So we expect from Jesus that when he speaks, it will be true that everything about him will be true. There won't be any slipping up, any, oh, that's not what I meant, but it will be truth. Secondly, in John 17, 17, we discovered that this word that became flesh is truth, and his word is truth. It says, sanctify them by your truth. Your word 
is truth. I, I said half jokingly earlier that you needed a truth manual this morning in your lap. And now you have one because the word of God is truth. It doesn't wander and waver. It isn't open to it. Oh, there's some things that are open to interpretation, but by and large, it is foundational truth. You can also look at Psalm 119, 160. The entirety of your word, speaking of God's word, is truth. And every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Why is it true in this context? Because it endures forever. It doesn't change. Have you ever noticed how things have changed, especially if you're my age? There's a few gray hairs in here this morning. You, you've seen things that you never should do being done now and other things that you would try to do now because it used to be done before. It all gets quite, it's like brushing your teeth, right? When I first started brushing my teeth, you had to brush your teeth this way and then, oh, it was this way and now it's this way and don't eat eggs. Oh, you can eat eggs. And so that, those things aren't true because they what? Change. God's word is true because it endures. It doesn't change. And when we, when we think about the word being true, I'll add this third. We can't really get deep into it, but I'll add this third thing. Bible accuracy. When I look at the Bible, not only do I want to be told it's true, but I, I expect as a result of being it claiming to be true that I can now measure that even scientifically and prove that it's true. You say, well, Larry, how do you do that? Well, let's talk about its accuracy. Do you know that the Bible is the most historically accurate document ever produced in history? Did you know that? Did you know that 50% of the named places in the Bible have already been found and almost weekly we're finding more? The archaeologists use the Bible to assist them in doing their work because it's so accurate. Not only is it accurate from a historical perspective like that, but it's also extremely accurate when it makes predictions about the future. And if you have not read the book of Daniel, you really need to take the time to do this because you will be stunned in a careful look at that book as you discover that it predicted to the day that Jesus would come into Jerusalem. To the day! Not just, well, it might be sometime in the future, but to the day it predicted exactly when Jesus would ride into, the, into Jerusalem. And by the way, why do you think the chief priests and all of those other guys were standing on the road when Jesus rode into town? They were waiting for the Messiah. And when Jesus rode in, that was the wrong guy for them. So the Bible has this way of looking both, we can look at it looking backward, it's historically accurate, and when it predicted the future nearly 200 years in advance, it was exactly right. Not only that, it predicted the history of the next four major world kingdoms. Pretty good, huh? I think I can trust that book to be what, it's, what it claims itself to be, judgments that endure forever, full of grace and truth, truth. Last thing here that I want to share with you about this is what our part in having this truth manual is. 1 Timothy 3.15, if you'll put that up next. 1 Timothy 3.15 says this, 
I write to you so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Who is the truth dispenser today? Where do you, if you, like at work, I have to go, they have all these machines now. So if you need batteries or you need this or that, you go to this machine and it dispenses what you need. If the world needs truth today, where are they going to go to get it? According to 1 Timothy 3.15, you. You're the, tr- you're the church, right? The church is the pillar and ground, the foundation of the truth. We're the foundation of the truth because we have as our foundation the truth. So now we know what the truth is. We know that Jesus is the truth. His word is truth, that the Bible is true, and that we as a church are supposed to proclaim the truth. Now, having done that remedial work in our minds to reestablish what truth is and where it is, how does this famous question cross over to us today? You say, well, well, that was a long time ago. But people are the same. You know that in the Roman Empire at that time, there was lots of bobbing and weaving in the politics, right? Just like there is today. I think the only difference between us and them is electricity, right? People are people, right? And uh, we know that the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. So let's talk about this question in the context in which it was asked. What is truth? We've established what truth is, but what about today? Because if you reject the truth, what happens to you? It leads you to all different kinds of places debauchery, foolishness, confusion, pain and suffering, eternity in hell. These are all things that the abandonment of the truth promises for you. You can read more about this in Romans chapter 1. And we'll talk about a verse from there in a minute. But I'm going to get right down to the nuts and bolts now. And I warned the first service, I'll warn you too. I I have a failure in my ministry and I want to share that with you. I am not, and you may have already discovered this about me, I am not politically correct. And I've tried, but I just can't do it. You know why I can't do it? Because I love the truth. So it's really not a weakness in that sense. So in the matter of sexuality today, what is the truth? How are we to deal with the things that we're hearing about transgenderism, and homosexuality, and other sorts of behaviors like this. What is the truth? Because we're being told all kinds of things by all kinds of so-called experts. And I would just share with you a a study that just came out in the last two weeks. Uh, Again, this was a large study. 493,000 people, I think, were in the study. And And this was a study regarding homosexuality. Their attempt was to try to find the gene that, that made a person uh, have these desires. And they, uh, after all of that study, uh, they came back saying, we simply cannot say with any clear determination that there is a gene that you're born with that makes you gay. And that's, this is a large study. There have been numerous studies. And, you know, even if there was, it wouldn't, it wouldn't really upset me all that much. But we, we continued down the path trying to find the truth. Uh, transgenderism today. 
uh, a big, becoming a big deal where uh, a man may say that he feels like a woman or a woman may say that she feels like a man. I, there was a guy uh, on a, a blog that was talking about that, that lo- this is a logical fallacy to think about that because if you're a man, how do you know what a woman feels like? I mean, look, I, my wife and I have been married almost 37 years. And some days I look at her and I'm just like, what are you thinking? She comes up with the strangest stuff. And that's why we're such a great match, right? Because I would have never had that thought. But she has those thoughts and I'm like, what? That's how I know we're different. That's how I know that I can't think or feel like a woman because I'm not a woman. And I say all this to bring you to this point. With multiple genders or homosexuality, how do we explain this as Christians? Look, sin affects desires. Sin has tainted desires. So what would be a normal desire becomes one that's, or a natural desire becomes unnatural. Uh, Take it, let's say you have Uh, Sin has affected you in such a way that you have a proclivity to alcohol. So one drink just doesn't get it if you have that proclivity. If you have the proclivity to be an alcoholic, that's because your your desires are tainted by sin. The same would be true in transgenderism or homosexuality or drugs or anything else. Coming back to the truth, we understand that our nature is affected by sin and it changes our desires. And then Satan will come up behind you and encourage you in those sinful desires because he wants to confuse. He wants to counterfeit. He's got people on the news that are doing his bidding and his work, telling you that it's okay, telling you to go ahead, all in the plan to get you to move away from the truth and to a lie. And in our culture today, This is an attack on the truth. What is the truth regarding sexuality is what the scripture tells us. And I can sum it very easily. God made them male and female, two genders. And how did he put them together? Male and female. We have the truth. That's the truth. Anything else is moving away from the truth to some other idea. All right, if you didn't like me for that one, maybe this will help you. In the matter of politics and media, I'm going to talk about religion and politics in the same message. That's a no-no, as as I have been told. But I told you I have this problem about political correctness. Today in the media, it seems that you can say whatever you want. And this, this becomes a problem because you're moving away from the truth. So somebody says something on TV and it's clearly a lie, but nobody goes, "Uh, excuse me, that's a lie. We're afraid to say that today, it seems. And so no one is held accountable. No consequence is seen for lying. And so uh, people just go with it. The result of this is this thing called the end justifies the means. People who have exchanged, it says in Romans 1.25, exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. They're doing a quick switch on us. 
by lying on TV all the time. They're trying to give you a lie and swap it for the truth so that you can't tell the difference. That's why you need your truth manual all the time, right? You need to be able to process, and this has taken me a long time because generally I'm slower than most people. So it's taken me a long time to get to where I think in biblical terms, not in not trying to filter what's coming in from outside or work that out. I'm like, okay, here comes this thought, work it through my Bible filter into my brain, right? And if it doesn't pass the Bible filter, it's not the truth. I don't have to be too worried about it at that point. The other a uh, bad thing about lying to people through politics and the media all the time is that I stop believing you. You lose your credibility with me. When, I, when I've caught you in a lie, I used to assail Harry Reid for years in sermons because the man was a known liar and I felt it my duty to point out his lies. He was a liar. And that's unfortunate. You hate to have to do that. I, hey, I want to live in a world where when a politician says something, I can believe it. Don't you? I want to live in that world, but it doesn't seem that we do today because we're fleeing from the truth. Let me give you an example. There's a man running for president right now. His name is Pete Buttigieg. And this past week, I was looking for an illustration. I was thinking, man, what am I going to use for this illustration? And Pete stepped into the limelight and helped me out greatly. I thought I should send him a thank you note. But he said this week, that life starts at breath because that's when Adam's life started. So he's making an argument against or for abortion, right? So since life doesn't start before the first breath is taken, uh, don't worry about it. You can go ahead and get an abortion. Now, some of your mouth is hanging open. Right? It's like, how can somebody be that dumb? Does he have to remember to breathe? Uh, how can, as a Christian, how can you make a statement that dumb? Because everybody knows a baby in the womb is getting oxygen from where? Technically, it's already breathing because it's a baby. It's a human being. And so he exchanged the truth of God. And this is a man who claims to be a Christian, so I'm really going to pick on him. Right? I'm not cutting him any slack at all. He claims to be a Christian. And now it's my job as the church, the pillar and the ground of truth, to call him out. He exchanged the truth of God for the lie. A third one, this will really get, if those two haven't got you yet, this one will get you. You'll be mad at me after this. Climate change. Climate change. I just watched a, uh, and I, I don't want to be too funny about this. I, a lot of people are really fearful about this. They're really afraid of what's happening. I mean, I just saw this commercial, Tom Steyer's running for president as well. And he had this commercial on this past week uh, that is, uh, you know, the people in the commercial are like looking at the cameras right there, you know, and they're looking at you with their eyes are big. This is now, we've got to do something, we're all going to die, you know. And it's like, whoa, 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 back up. Are you sure we're all going to die? They, 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 yeah, someday. <laughs> but in the meantime, right, what is the truth about climate change? Can we use our Bible to figure out the truth about climate change. Well, I know what some truths are. First of all, the globe is warming. That's an indisputable truth at the moment. It's also absolutely true that during the Roman period, during Jesus's period, it was actually warmer than it is now. Really? 
Yes, it's true. It's actually warmer. But we didn't have gas engines and oil. and Yeah, no, we didn't. So I'm looking at the facts here. I'm going, okay, well, these people are upset and they're urgent about this, but I know those two facts to be true. How, how about if I look at how they're living their lives? If, if they really believe this, they're going to be toe in the line, right? So you probably heard in the last few weeks that a famous guy who used to be president bought a new house. You know where he bought it at? And I don't even, look, um, let's not go political on who the guy is. It doesn't matter. He said, we're going to die in a few years. We're going to start living like, like you know, this is real. And he, he buys a $15 million mansion right on the beach. Now, I don't know, maybe some of you haven't been around long enough, but back in 1996, Al Gore said that by 2010, Florida and Manhattan would be underwater. We have a problem, Houston. It's 2019. What happened? If you read the IPCC climate reports that come out and you listen to the stuff that they put out year after year after year for the last 15 years, every year has been the tipping point. We'll never get past this point. If we don't do something now, wait, we didn't do anything last year, but it's this year. So if this year, if we don't do something, then next year, 15 times. So people who believe in climate change are buying houses next to the shore. They're telling me I'm going to die in X number of years, and it doesn't happen. Manhattan and Florida aren't underwater all these years later. If your predictions don't come true, Deuteronomy 18 says, you are a false prophet. It requires it. And look, I can take this back further because I'm old. I remember when the world was going to freeze. Okay? Global cooling. We're all, it's, it's a little ice age is on the way. You can look it up, cover of Time, cover of uh, National Geographic, all there. And then somewhere in the 90s, when it stopped cooling and started getting warmer, they all came out, they were all converted. Said, oh, global cooling's over, now global warming's coming, sky is falling. Stop with that already. I don't need another disaster to track in my life. My life is enough of a disaster. I need the truth. What is the truth about climate change? The truth about it is the world, and maybe this will make you feel better. I hope it does today. The world is not going to end because of global warming. How do I know that? Have you read the book of Revelation? You know exactly how the world's going to end. And I don't see, I taught the book of Revelation at the Bible college years ago. And I never once taught the book, and came away believing that global warming was it. Right? You read the book of Revelation. I encourage you to read it. I think you'll agree with me. That's not global warming. Meteors falling out of the sky is not global warming. Okay? So the world's not going to end like that. And that leads me to this final point. Because I believe more and more people are going to want to hear the truth. I think people are genuinely scared scared of what we're being told on TV today. People are are afraid. I mean, I don't know if these were actors doing the commercial or if they were actual people. I didn't pay that much attention to it. but, But I believe that there are people who actually believe this stuff. And they're afraid. And therein lies the gift of knowing the truth. 
The truth, Jesus said, will make you free. Look at John 8, 31 and 32 as he puts it up here for us. Do you have that? Yeah, there it is. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Free from what? Well, for sure, one of the things that the truth sets you free from is fear. I'm not fearful of climate change. I'm not fearful of people moving away from the truth. I am concerned about it, don't get me wrong, but I'm not fearful because God has been uh, gracious enough to me to give me the truth. And so truth pushes fear off the table. It, it, it sets you free in so many ways. Fear is the one that I had on my heart, but think about it, it sets you free from sin. If you're encouraged to a sinful lifestyle, the Bible says, hey, this is God's plan for your life. You don't have to give in to that. You have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. You can actually call on the Lord Jesus and he will help you move in the direction of the truth. If you're suffering from drugs, alcohol, gender dysphoria, uh, homosexuality, any of those things, hey, that's not God's best for your life. God's best is in this book, and he wants to, by his spirit, move you out of those things and set you free from them. The other thing I love about this is that when, when I know the truth, it sets me free from the nonsense that wants to come into my head. Right? When you watch the news, I'm set free from that. I, I have on more than one occasion pointed at the TV when somebody was telling me something and said, liar, liar, pants on fire. I caught him in the act. Why? Not because I'm some smart guy, but because I know the truth and I make it my business to know the truth. You should too. You should make it your business to know the word of God and make it that filter that helps you filter out the nonsense and able to see what God's best is, what God's plan is. So here's what I want you to do this week and ongoing. Commit to being a truth seeker. Don't just let any old stuff come into your mind, whether it's through music, media, whatever. Hey, you be a truth seeker. You weigh the things that you're hearing and say, Wow, I hear that coming in. What does the Bible, maybe you don't know what the Bible says about that. Great question, right? What does the Bible say about this issue? Or what does the Bible say about that issue? And what that does is that brings you to a place of knowing the truth. And then you can be set free. But this is only going to happen if you, use, if you use the word as your guide. The other thing that would be really important about this, and it is becoming more and more uncomfortable to embrace the truth. You know it and I know it. Look, I go to work every day just like you do. And I know what your employer thinks about what I'm saying. And I know if my employer ever watched this video, I might have a problem having a job. That's a reality today. So I'm preaching in secret. No. 
They all know I'm a pastor there. I can't get away with anything. But, but this, this could cost you something. But it's worth it. It's worth it to know the truth. It's worth it to stand for the truth and to go to work every day. And what may be the most important of all is it sharing the truth, right? You're standing, you're walking in a way that honors the Lord. People see that. And you know, I'll be honest with you, most of the people at work, when we get into a one-on-one about these things, they're like, yeah, you're right. But what, what am I doing? Sharing the truth. Not afraid. Can't be afraid. Fear is not from the Lord. But we need to share the truth. And I want to pray for you about that. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, as we gather around the truth, and we hold this precious truth in our hands, God, I pray for all the hearts in this room that, Lord, if there's something they need to be set free from today by applying the truth to their lives, would you open their eyes to that? And, Lord, fill them with the spirit of grace and truth so that as they learn to walk in the truth themselves, that, Lord, that example will go before them and that their friends and neighbors and co-workers will see the truth in action, see the truth in love, And then, God, use us to proclaim that truth. Use us, God, individually be the pillar and ground of the truth. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.